You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 28. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is really two, runway 411 0 at 5. Quick takeoff. Sea tide. Altitude is zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire I got cut by a vehicle or something. Our first launch was literally an army sergeant ran to our talk about a half mile out of breath, gave us a piece of paper with some coordinates and said, you guys got to launch. That was our first launch in Afghanistan like that. And then we successfully prosecuted that mission. Um, then Anaconda happened, and and what had happened prior to Anaconda was the army had crashed a few birds, and this is no slam on them at all. It just the it was lower loom dust. It was just it was horrible, and you had guys with limited experience in that environment, and so they had some accidents. That's the voice of my guest today. Yanel Yogi Durellis. He's served in every branch of the military. And in that clip, he's talking about the opening days of Afghanistan when his unit was deployed there. He received a Distinguished Flying Cross for supporting Operation Anaconda. We talked about that in this episode, as well as his vast and diverse aviation career. So I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get rolling, just a few admin notes. Right out the gate, I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters. They're getting exclusive content over at patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. For as little as $2, you can support the podcast. You'll get these episodes ad-free and at least a day early. But depending on the level you join at, there's more exclusive content available. For example, Flight Leads and Above, they're getting There I Was stories. So these are exclusive standalone stories that you would tell after the debrief in the squadron bar. But there's more content there. And then something that's new is merchandise. I'm building out the storefront on the afterburnpodcast.com. But right now, Patreon supporters, depending on the level you join at, they're getting merchandise that's included with their membership. For instance, the director of ops level, which is the highest level, you're getting a hat, a coffee mug, a leather patch, as well as stickers that are included with your membership at that level. And it varies. So if you're looking to support the podcast, Patreon is one way to do it. But if you're not interested in that, just taking the three to 10 seconds to go over to iTunes, hit a five-star review. And if you're willing to leave a few words there in the comments, I always enjoy reading the reviews. So if you drop a comment in there, again, that helps the podcast grow and expand and let Apple know they should show it to more people because that's where this podcast gets listened to the most. So that being said, let's get into the episode with Yogi. Awesome. Well, Yogi, on that note, uh, one, I appreciate you joining me in the podcast. For those who are listening, we've attempted to record this, I don't know, five or six times. So we're finally here. We're making it happen. So thanks for joining me on the podcast. Before we get rolling, will you tell everyone just a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing today? Well, my name's Yogi Durellis. Yonel is my first name. Yogi's my call sign. There's a great story behind that because I managed to orchestrate my own call sign throughout my career. Once I realized you usually get your call sign for doing something stupid, but that's another story. Um, I'm sure you can tell I was born and raised in New York City. Um, grew up in Manhattan, you know, uh, rode the subway to school every day. I mean, 
didn't own a car till I was 24. Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew I grew up in in as urban an urban environment as you can get. Um, yeah, it's kind of like growing up seen, in Georgia, just different. Well, I, I spent three and a half years in Valdosta, man. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah, you understand then the, the dichotomy yeah. there. Yeah. So um, I grew up. Don't come from a military family. You know, uncle served in World War II, had an older cousin who served in Vietnam. Uh, but don't come from a military family at all, but was attracted to it. Oh, man. I mean, I'm one of these guys, everyone who knows me, you know, reconnecting with people from high school via. So everyone remembers me drawing airplanes in school and uh, just the military. attract. I mean, honestly, I saw the Sands of Iwo Jima as a kid and I'm like, I'm going to be a Marine, you know, and um I, I kind of was focused on that from as far back as I can remember. Like I said, no, uh, no real strong military background in my family. Matter of fact, my single grew up with a single working mom. She was a typical Jewish mother, probably wanted a doctor or a lawyer. And I, I shut that down early. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. And I'm sure she hoped I'd grow out of it, but I never did. Um, was really focused on being a Marine officer, uh, that was really the goal for me to be a Marine officer and Marine aviator. Um, unfortunately, I didn't correlate being an officer and being a good kid. I was not a good kid. I was kind of, I, I straddled the line between good and bad. And um, when I got to college and uh, walked in the officer selection office uh, in New York, uh, there was a colonel there who, a Mustang, who basically told me, um, uh, come back in a year. Cause right now I would not consider you appropriate candidate for this program. He sat me down. He explained to me, I didn't present well, uh, you know, both, uh, you know, the, in, in, in the way I dressed and just my attitude, you know, I was a little, you know, he, he was a street guy made good. So he was pretty straightforward. He said, you know, you're presenting right now as a guy who hangs out on the corner on the stoop and which wasn't too far off the truth, <laughs> but I mean, and he said, if you really want this, you know, learn how to interview, learn how to, you know, work on uh, diction, vocabulary, those kind of things and come back and see me in a year. And I, you know, I guess that was, he figured, hey, if the guy wants it, he'll be back in a year. And I showed up back in a year, a different person ready, you know, uh, a more serious college student, more serious about everything. And um, I was accepted into the officer program. Uh so I don't know how many Marine aviators you've had on. I know Brian had some on uh, the, the path to being a Marine officer, obviously the Academy ROTC, but Marine Corps has a unique thing called a platoon leaders class program, which provides college students opportunity to go to officer candidate school while they're in college, then come back and be in an inactive reserve status, collect some money. And, uh, and then uh, you get your commission when you uh, graduate. Now, they offer two options. You can do it two summers in a row or one 10 week. I have since learned that the smart thing to do is go to the one 10 week. I chose the other option because <laughs> again, in my not yet developed mind, I was like, okay, I can still salvage some of my summer. I can go out to the beach and hang out in the, with my friends in the Hamptons or, or whatever, but dumbest, stupidest, most idiotic decision among many of my idiotic decisions. Cause basically it's going to Marine boot camp twice. So you go down there, you do the first six weeks, you come back and a year later, you're, you have to make the choice to go again. Now, uh, from the particular officer selection office, I 
came from six of us started that second summer, only two of us went back. Yeah. It's a little bit right? tougher to like rip the bandaid off a second time. I would imagine. Yeah. No, I, I literally remember being on the back of my friend's motorcycle. We were taking a ride around the city. We stopped at a light. It was the day before I was so supposed to go back. And I just leaned over and threw up because the idea of going back was horrifying to me, but I talked so much crap about being a Marine that I had painted myself into a corner. I couldn't quit, you know? So I went back and again, it's just the same thing. Get off the bus, screaming, yelling, the same silly things where you empty your duffel bag and hold up every item of gear. And when the guy holds it up in the wrong hand, you all suffer and do bends and thrusts in the Virginia, you know, the hot uh, Northern Virginia humid summer till you puke. Anyway, I've since advised several people who became Marine officers. And the first thing I do is tell them, go to the 10 week program. Don't do the two, six weeks. It's just don't do it. Just get it knocked out. Was there anything you really had to overcome to get into the Marines? So you said you got into some trouble as a kid. Was it significant trouble or is it just like, hey, you need an attitude readjustment, spend a year, come back? It wasn't significant. Now, I, I will admit I've done some things. Had I been caught it would have changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah, right? fair enough. No doubt. You know, God looks out for idiots. You know, I believe in God and he, for some reason, I mean, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you after a life of crazy experiences. He somehow decided I got to look out for this moron, you know? So, uh, but the, the, the military and the Marine Corps was exactly what I needed because I was a bit of a spoiled. My mom, indulge me my older brother was 11 years older and left the house early and and uh i was a little spoiled a little selfish a a a little soft even though i thought i was a tough guy yeah and everything the marine corps did i needed and i learned that i was if i really was going to be a leader you know i i was around this was 81 all the drill instructors had been to vietnam most the senior ncos had all been in vietnam you know um and i realized like this is not a joke. I'm not cut out for this per se, like a lot of the guys who showed up and I, I can't explain it. You know, I just, I, I decided this is what I want. I have to do it. It wasn't easy. I was, you know, uh, they tell you to be the gray man. I couldn't be the gray man if I tried. So I used to think my name was just begin because they would just walk up to me and go, just begin. And I would be doing bends and thrusts. You know, I, I, I just, I had, it was the greatest experience, but the toughest experience of my life. And the farther I get away from it, the more I realize uh, what a transformative and great thing it was for me. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I will owe the Marine Corps any success I have in life. What little modicum of success I've had will be because of the things I learned the principles, values, and things I learned in the Marine Corps. And I I say that as cliche as it sounds, 100% convinced of it. No, I mean, it it makes sense. I mean, it completely changed your trajectory and put you on where you, the path you're on today. And it sounds like it could have been a very different path. And talking to young people, I'm the same way. Like I did some dumb stuff that, you know, it could have gone south and my, the trajectory I've been on would have been completely different. So someone's watching out for me and I'm forever thankful and grateful and blessed because of that, the unfortunate piece that young people don't realize today, or not all young people realize, is 
especially going to the military, one or two dumb decisions can have ramifications that impact the their entire life. And even in today's culture is even worse. There's 10 cell phones all recording what you're doing and you're one step away from being on YouTube or plastered being the next viral thing. Yeah. And not a no, good way. It, you're hundred percent correct. And, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just grateful, you know, that I kind of had that goal where I knew, okay, I, there's certain lines I can't cross. You know what I mean? And, and I'm kind of glad that kept me, but I, I did. I, I don't want to mention them here because <laughs> they're frankly embarrassing and things I'm ashamed of, but there were things that, you know, would have, would have changed, you know, they would have put me in jail, yeah. pure and simple. And, and, you know, um, I don't regret my upbringing. I'm glad I had the upbringing I did. I'm glad I kind of, you know, uh, seen the things I did and, and was exposed to things I was, I think that helped me in a lot of ways as an officer and as in the military, believe it or not. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't, like I said, I mean, now that I, but like I said, I, I, it sounds cliche and dopey, but man, the man upstairs has looked out for me. I don't know why, but he did because, but yeah, the, the Marine Corps was great. And unfortunately my timing, I just have the worst timing in the world. So I got my commission and went to TBS. Every new Lieutenant goes to TBS. It's basically a six month infantry officers course at the platoon level. You work, you, you, you're basically trained in small unit tactics at the platoon level. You're a company of lieutenants led by captains who've been out in the fleet and some NCOs to assist. And you all get the various leadership positions and the various problems, as well as, uh, you know, you learn some of the administrivia involved in being a Marine officer. You learn about fitness reports and enlisted reports and you get a whole book on etiquette and how to present, you know, how to present yourself to at social functions and what fork to use, believe it or not. But uh, um, after that, you know, I was on an air contract, so I was slated to go to flight school. Well, at the end of TBS, they used to have something called a three-day war, where it was a basic three-day field exercise. And um, we got back from the three-day war and they called us into the auditorium and I'm paraphrasing, but they said, sucks to be you guys. We've got too many aviators at both ends of the pipeline. So um, nobody's going to flight school, at least for 18 to 24 months. Uh, they gave us several options. One was if you dropped your air contract, they'd give you any MOS you wanted, regardless of your class standing. And then those of us who wanted to stick it out and wait for the air contract, they stick us where they wanted us for 18. Like I had orders to the seventh truck battalion in Camp was, Pendleton, California. It's a good thing. Every Marine's a rifleman first, right? Right. So, so they'll find something. But one of the kids in my class, his father was a admiral at Nav Air. Now Nav Air uh, basically oversees naval aviation. So it includes the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard and the Navy. So this guy walked over to his Marine counterpart, said, what's going on? They explained it, and he was like, well, we're kind of short pilots. Do you think the Marine Corps will let a couple of guys swap to the Navy? And the Marine Corps being the Marine Corps, and I get this, they're like, you might get a couple of guys. Sure, give it a shot. So these Navy 06s show up, and they say, you know, if you're willing to do this, we'll make it happen, and you'll go down to Pensacola next week. We'll update your physicals, and then if that works out, we'll swap you to the Navy. So 
um, this, there was four companies at TBS that were kind of uh, at various stages of TBS that disaffected. Now, I was done. So I was like, okay, I have nothing more to prove in the Marine Corps. This sounds like a good idea, but I drank the Marine Corps Kool-Aid. So I was really struggling with it, right? Yeah. The captains called uh, student platoon commanders come in and they get a chance to talk to us. Now, in my company, there was two infantry officers and two aviators who ran, you know, one, each captain ran one of the four platoons in the student company, right? So the first infantry officer, he's a Mustang. This guy is out of a mold. He looks like a Cro-Magnon man, jaw out to here, arms bustling out of his rolled up sleeves, former enlisted infantry guy, you know, just central casting right yeah, off the yeah, bat. Hardened. I'd rather dig ditches in the Marine Corps than fly jets in the Navy. If any of you guys do this, you're traitors. I don't want anything <laughs> to do with you. He walks out, right? The other yeah. infantry officer, much more, I think he went to Harvard or something, much more mild-mannered, you know, hard guy, but just different, you know? Yeah. Kind of the um, nerd assassin type, you know? <laughs> He's like, you yeah. guys got to do what's best for you. Whatever you do, I respect it. Good luck. You guys have busted your ass here. You deserve to get what you want. You know, I'd love for you to stay in the Marine Corps, but good luck. He walks out. The two aviators come up together and they go, we will deny this in public, but if you guys don't take this deal, you're stupid. And they walk out. So that kind of cemented it for me. Yep. And I uh, took a few weeks, months for the paperwork to come through. Uh, I, I got to be in charge of the headquarters platoon part of the time with all, and that was made up of all the Marines who were in trouble, were waiting, you know, pop positive. So it was great for me because these guys would salute me with their left. So it was a good little leadership course for me. And then one day, got my DD-214 from the Marine Corps, sidestepped one foot, one sidestep, sworn into the Navy as an ensign and was in flight school about a week and a half later. It's wild to me that the Marines fall under the Department of the Navy, yet you had to get separated from the Marine Corps in order to get. Yeah, I mean, Navy. it's a different branch of the service. I mean, just like the Space Force is now a separate branch of the yeah. service under the Department of the Air Force, you know. And But, I mean, it was, it was a win for the Navy because they have trained officers, right? Yep. Trained plus, because now, you know, obviously we're probably a little more squared away than your average Naval officer. And, um... <laughs> It, you know, it just, it met their requirement. And for me, it was just growing my hair out a little bit and putting on a different uniform. So Demarine uh, it, a little bit. It, it worked out. Um, Pensacola, I'm sure you've been there. I mean, it's, it was a, it was a stressful, tough year, mainly because you're fighting the temptation to have too good a time. You have to, again, it was another place where I learned to buckle down and so, you know, if I wanted to get through, cause I wasn't academically gifted, nor was I particularly gifted in the aircraft that I was going to have to take it a little seriously. I found that I was not a natural pilot, even though I had 40 hours of, cause I went to Embry Riddle for a semester and flunked out, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> but, here there. but I got 40 years of, I got 40 hours of, time, of 172 time. I found out that didn't help me much in the T-34 I got a little air sick during acro. So that was a little bit of a, of, you know, um, and, and, but 
you know, I just buckled down and, and I, I knew I, I just was always fascinated with helicopters. You know, I, I gotta be honest. I never was like, I gotta be a fighter pilot or nothing. Like I know a guy who quit flight school cause he did not get jets, you know, in the, in the Navy, when you get done with primary, you track either jets, helos, props, right? Uh, it's probably changed some now with the different aircraft, but then it was, you know, you track fighters, you track helos, or you track props, which was going to be either P3s or C-130s, right? This guy didn't get jets, he quit, which I think is the craziest thing to me. Like, he, he literally was like, if I can't fly fighters, I don't want to be a pilot, which... I remember the first day we got to flight school, the Admiral said, I wish I was where you guys were. Two things I remember. He goes, I wish I was where you guys were. And two, you will be happy no matter what you fly. Work hard, pursue your goals. But if it doesn't work out, don't, you will be happy no matter what you fly, you know? And, um, I, but I ended up, I, I just finally said, I want to be a helicopter pilot. So when it came time to put, our dream sheet, I put helos, helos, helos. Did you want and, that, like knowing going into pilot training or is that something as you learn more in pilot training that you figured, hey, I want to go fly helos because of the mission or is it just the the fact that those things are just shaking themselves apart that really attracted you I to was, it? No, I was, I was fascinated, you know, I was fascinated with Hueys from Vietnam and all the footage and I, I had met a guy who flew Hueys in Vietnam and the guy was just cool, man. He was just a cool dude, you know? Yeah. I'd met him in Hawaii. He was kind of like a laid back dude who was an older guy getting high, you know, but he had just flown, you know, two tours in Hueys and I just thought he was a cool dude, you know? And, yeah. um, but we got to take fam rides in the helos, not up front, but in the back. And I, I don't know. I was just like, yeah, I like this, man. This is, and I'm sorry to backtrack. I, while I was in college, I saved up money to take a helo lesson in an in a old Bell 47, the, the kind of helos you saw in MASH. Yep. Well, we crashed. He was showing me other rotations, and he crashed the helicopter. And we walked away, and I didn't get hurt. Now, ignorance is bliss. It could have turned out a lot worse, but... It, it usually uh, does his, in those cases. Buffoonery, his buffoonery was not the ultimate before. So I came away going, well, shit, you can crash in a helicopter and walk away. This is pretty cool. I think I want to fly these. You and I might be wired slightly different. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I picked Helos. I don't regret it. They're just, I loved them from the minute I got in one. I did think I would never graduate flight school the first time I got in it. And he gave me the controls. And I remember, first of all, he has one finger on the cyclic showing me how to hold a hover, right? And he goes, I'll give you the pedals first. The way they do it, they, yeah, I'll give you the pedals first, then I'll give you the collective, then I'll give you the cyclic. I remember just before he gave me the cyclic, he goes, keep it in Florida. And then once he gave it to me, it was just, you know, a wild ride. And I went home that night and I almost cried because I'm like, I'm never going to get this. I screwed up. I should have went props or something because I'm never going to get this. I'm going to fail out of flight school. I'm going to be on a ship in the Indian ocean in a month. You know, I, mean, I was just horrified, but it worked out, you know, and one day I could hover like the light bulb comes on and you can hover and you can do all this stuff. And it's like, then you're like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And just, I like the low to the ground sensation. I, you know, I just, I, I just fell in love with it. I loved it. And you know, I, 
I, I love watching you guys zoom around. I love when you guys come help us out and drop bombs and shoot guns. But I'm just like, I like, I like the fact that if something bad happens, I can hopefully land this thing <laughs> and is, run away. Yeah, that is kind of the nice thing. I always wondered, like, if you're on an instrument approach and the weather's bad, you're like, well, I'm at men's. If you can just hover versus, you know. No, see, that's, the, that's <laughs> everyone always asks that. No, we're, fun, we're doing it just like you. Like, if I hover an IMC, unless I have a coupled hover system, it's spatial D plus a million. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, our biggest – one of the biggest dangers are brownouts. If you see these brownout landings, I mean, because if you can't spot that drift, that lateral drift, that's that, you know, that's what gets you in trouble. So yeah, no. And I, we're the only advantage we have over you is I can do an approach. If I really wanted to, I could fly an approach at 60 knots. We generally fly them at 90, you know, 90, but, um, that's the only advantage I have is as I get close to men's, I can slow down. So that if I break out and I'm close to the ground, I'm not going to do some high yucca maneuver, but we still have to fly an approach just like a regular airplane, you know, and, and I think that's good, but that you're like the thousand, <laughs> thousand fixed wing guys asking me that. Can't you guys just hover yeah. down? I'm like, no, I'm like, this no. is easy. I just can't see the runway. I'm just going to hover here for a minute and wait for the weather now, to be better. Some of the new aircraft have a coupled system, just like in the airliners you fly, like, so they can bring you down to like 10 feet in a hover. And some of the, I have yet to fly. I'm just, I'm aging out of that stuff, but I flew, you know, to the boat at night, just sweat pouring off, just going, this is crazy. Why'd I pick this for, you know, hoping the ship will pop out of the blackness. And I flew, I flew in the Navy before goggles. So when you're out at sea, basically, I tell people, you want to know what it's like to fly at night over the ocean, just go in your closet, shut the door. That's it. Yeah, I I, I can attest. I've told a story on a couple podcasts where I was being interviewed and it was flying over the ocean, doing some practice dive glides, which we did one round of it and realized this is dumb because we can't tell what are boats and what are stars. And that's when we had goggles and we had like a I would say a decent moon, but we definitely had starlight so you could see out there. Um, I can't imagine doing that with no illumination out there. It sounds insane. And throw in some <laughs> high seas or something like that, just and make it sporty. Nope. When the, when the ocean is smooth and it's a, a, is almost worse because the starlight re- reflects off the ocean, so you can't tell if the stars are like it looks like a mirror. It's crazy. Nah, it's, I'm good. That's I mean, that's kind of like why I, you know, I'm pretty proud of my gold wings, you know what I mean? And and that's why the Navy guys swagger a little more is because it's sometimes you're out there and you're like, this is absolutely retarded. I should have been an accountant, but you just do it, you know, because you got no choice. The, the, the boat is the only game in town. I'll, th- I'll throw this out there. They could use a runway that's fixed to land. That's another option out there. It's true, but you can't take that <laughs> runway and sail it off the coast of bad guy land and make them understand that yeah. right, right off that coast is enough firepower to turn their country into a parking lot. I think, you know, and uh, I'm trying to think, maybe it's MH53. I know you've probably seen the video. I think it's laying on the back of a destroyer. It's laying on the back of some kind of boat. Um, but like it gets- The one that flips over? Yeah, I, yeah, it's a 46. Yeah. I flew 53s in the Navy. So I flew CH-53Es, which is huge. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that can catch you out there. But honestly, I mean, 
you know, flying in the Air Force, watch, I mean, aviation as a whole is just a inherently dangerous profession. And, and the kind of flying you do in the military, as you well know, as an airline guy, it's completely different than civilian flying. And, you know, you are hanging it out there. You know, they, they do the best they can to mitigate the risk, but we're asked to do a job that involves significant risk. And you learn, I mean, look at, look at getting gas at night off the tanker. Right. You do it, I do it, right? It's Think about it. It's routine. Like you said, it's routine to us. But when you look under the goggles, like at times I'd be flying in the mountains in Nevada and I'd look under the goggles and i go, this is insane. You know, this is, it's cool, but it's insane. Like, think about going to the tanker at night. I like tanker at night and you are in the weather and you're rejoining, I, you know what I mean? Trying to rendezvous with the tanker at night in some skosh weather. I mean, but it was routine. You didn't think about it. You just go, okay, we'll do this. We'll do that. And you're, you're sweating a little bit when you're flying, but I mean, but to the average person, it's, it's madness. And, you know, you take the average GA pilot and talk to him, even a guy who's been flying a while and just tell him the stuff you've done. And, you know, the st- it's going to the- think, think about just aerial refueling in general. Right. It's kind of crazy that we've come up with a way to pass jet fuel from another flying object to another flying object. Yeah, but it's, it's like you yeah, it's like you said, it, you all I care about is the time, the point, and really the frequency. That's as detailed as you get as far as the brief goes because you're just right. going to go out there and do it. It's we'll putting be on this track head. or if it's not a track, you give some coordinates, you work the times out. I mean, and you know when you were flying cast in Afghanistan, you know, you're cycling back and forth to the tanker to make sure you can stay on station for whatever troop. I mean, it becomes routine. But when you now that I don't do it anymore and I watch films of it, I'm like, one, I miss it. But I'm also like, that's kind of crazy. You know, I'm flying this helicopter within 40 feet of this other aircraft, yeah. you know, while taking on Jet A at a thousand pounds a minute. And I got to stay on the tanker when he turns around. Right. Yep. And try to stay on the hose. I've slain the drogue before. You know, I've put the probe right. I've, <laughs> I've, you're, everybody's going to do it. But those have, I mean, those you got to stay on this tanker. So you're flying formation to try to stay on the hose and still get gas. I, I mean, it's it's nuts, but it was the best job. They paid us, man. <laughs> I was talking to my old boss just recently. So he was working with some engineers and talking about max reforming the aircraft. And so this was really talking about the F-35 engine and, you know, they, they've designed it right where you can go idle to max. And they're thinking maybe you do that once in every now and then he's like, no, why go out and fly BFM? I mean, that's a hundred times in a sortie. I'm idle yeah. to max, idle to max, idle to max. Like it is taking the plane, the aircraft all the way to its limits because that's what you need to do when you go out there and fight. So it, you're asking a lot and the margins of error that are the, to, the tolerance there is really small when it comes down to, if you go left or right, just a little too far, it's going to be catastrophic. I mean, even, you know, with helicopters, you know and I mean? We have a, you know, we have our weapons guys who go through it. You know, we max perform the helicopter. We, we, you know, we've even, I've done BF, you know, I've fought other helicopters, fought an F-16, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you're yanking this thing, the, the fuel, you know, it's just this little linkage, 
you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's probably similar in, in the, uh, I don't know if it's an electric or mechanical linkage in your jet, but you know, we have this little linkage that's going to the HMU to fuel control and, and you're just doing, and, you know, especially if, if you're, you know, uh, you know, you do an NOE and you're trying to, you know, we're at a hundred feet, we're trying to use the terrain to mask us. And then, you know, and, and, uh, you know, when you're dealing with an LZ and you're trying to come in and then you're getting shot at, so you got to get, you're just constantly performing this aircraft. I mean, uh, the Air Force 860s have these 308 beam cracks just because we beat the crap out of them for, t especially since the war for 20 plus years. Um, and they keep getting re reinforced, you know, and thankfully the new aircraft will be online soon because, but yeah, I mean, everything we do is to a limit. And, and when you compare it to civilian flying, like the flying I do, it doesn't even come close. You know, it's like, oh, you're an air ambulance pilot. That sounds so cool, but it, and it's a great job. But in essence, I just take off. Sometimes I land in the desert or on a highway and I land on a hospital pad and I don't maneuver the aircraft, you know, like I used to. I don't, you, you know, just like you. I mean, <laughs> you just, it's completely different. You know, it's, it's completely different. And it, it, it's, you learn some good stuff. Yeah, no doubt. And so I don't want to jump too far ahead because I want to talk about the air ambulance, what you're doing now, but you go into the Navy and you're flying MH-53s. You do that for a little bit. Seven. All right, seven years and then transition into the Army, correct? Yeah, so I got out. I was a moron and I thought, you know, I had my second kid and I didn't want to be gone and yada, yada. The Gulf War had ended and I was like, ah, you know what? I think I want to be a, do the corporate thing. All my buddies were seeing these headhunters and getting jobs. And I just, I got a job back in New York for Airborne Express in a management capacity. I literally knew in a week I'd made the biggest mistake. And I literally went back to the Navy and said, can I come back? And they were like, too bad, so sad. You know, so um, I just shotgun my paperwork out. New York has a bunch of aviation reserve units from all the services around the Army Guard just got back to me the quickest. I became an Army Warrant Officer, flew in uh, Hueys, was a W-2, was a great unit. Um, all more, A good percentage of guys had flown in Vietnam. They were cops, firemen, lawyers, doctors, and it was it was really a flying club. We didn't do anything tactical. The Huey was <laughs> on the way out as a, as a platform, as a viable platform. They were starting to get hawks in the unit. So it was great. Like, You'd show up for a drill weekend and um, the lieutenant would brief the mission. He'd say, I want you guys to go do this, this, and this. And, and, and he'd walk out and the W3 would go, we're not doing that. We're, we're going down to Atlantic City. I know a Chinese place down there. We'll do some low level on the ocean. And, and we go down and we, you know, we take a four ship to Atlantic City, eat in the all you can eat Chinese buffet you know, and, or something that he, this W3 had liked and, and uh, we'd fly back and, you know, just, it was just, these guys were great. They were great pilots. I learned a lot from them. All of them been like a lot of the guys in Vietnam would just, they talk to each other about their stories and you just sit there and go, what you were shot down and you went back and got another helicopter and, you know, and just, and I would just, and I'm like, you know, and they weren't, they were these, 
a lot of them did became cops and firemen, I think, because of the adrenaline, but they weren't, they were nice guys, you know, yeah. they were just good, but you'd listen to them. And as a younger guy, I'd be like, what? That's crazy to me, you know, and, and it was just fun. And then um, about four and a half years into that, and in opening at the 102nd Rescue Group, um, the Air Guard unit out on Long Island of uh, Perfect Storm fame, an opening came there. And I just, I took a shot, uh, got accepted, was in the unit, uh, was going to do, they started doing in-house training for me in the, in the HH60. And then a slot at Kirtland came available. They said, do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah. So I took a, and in between that, I had left the Airborne Express job and my buddy had been working in the box office on Broadway as in, in ticket sales, which is a, a really good job. Like it's a union job, like one of those old school union jobs. You got to know someone to get in. And it's a, it sounds like, oh, you're selling tickets. You're making good dough. It's a great gig. And he got me that job and I'd been working that. And um, I was at Kirtland. I took a leave of absence. I was at Kirtland and about a month into it, the assignments guy for Hilo showed up and all the active duty guys were saying, hey, man, we're hurting for pilots. You should ask if they'll let you come on active duty. So I just kind of cornered the guy in the hallway and was like, hey, you know, I'm Yogi Durellis. I'm from the 106 Rescue on Long Island, the guard unit. Can I come on active duty? And he's like, did they pay for you to go to flight school? I'm like, no. I said, I came in as a cell res. Here's my background. He goes, yeah, put in a request. If, if they approve it, I'll bring you on for two years. So I did that. Got my two-year orders assigned to Nellis Air Force Base. And two things happened that were interesting. I found out because of my time in aviation counted, my Navy time and Army time, I was eligible for the bonus. And I had my first promotion board to major within four months of my coming over to the Air Force. Hadn't, hadn't been to SOS, hadn't done any of the Air Force pedigree stuff. No. Yeah. So... Tried to get it done by, I got it done by correspondence, but this is 98. So completely different environment than, so I got passed over. So now I'm like, oh man. And everybody's like, oh, this is a big problem now. You know, and I, I'm like, well, why is it a big problem? I don't care. I, I honestly, I mean, I, I just, I wasn't thinking long range and I was like, I don't care. I don't mind being a captain. It doesn't bother me. You know, I just and, want to fly and, helicopters. Yeah. I mean, and they're like, well, I don't think you'll make major. And that means you might not be able to stay till 20. And then literally a month later, they came out with this thing. We'll retain captains to 20, sign this. So I signed it. I'm like, okay, I resigned myself that I was going to be a captain. And honestly, I looked at it as a good deal because I'm like, well, if I don't have to worry about promotion, I can pretty much say what I want, do what I want. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can, I, you know. Freedom. And then um, the war happened. You know, I, I was at Nellis. I did a bunch of ONW, OSW stuff, which was really cool. I really enjoyed both of those um, operations, especially the turkeys. Northern and Southern Watch, it was really good. In, uh, and we thought it was like combat. You know, we were getting combat pay and, and you know, we were flying around Turkey and the PKK and the Turk. Like we would we would sit alert in Sirnak, which is north of the Iraqi border. And while the vol was going on, because they had the vol then, you know, the vol was like from zero, 600 to 1500, you know, it was like a, real a war on, yeah. on the clock. Yeah, you real know? gentleman-like. 
And, yeah, and uh, we would sit at this Turkish base, Sinak, and but their aircraft were taking off and shooting up the PKK like in the same valley. Like we we'd be drinking tea with the Cobra pilots. They'd launch on a mission, come back shot. Our PJs would help them, you know, with that. I mean, it was crazy. And, um, but it was really good experience. And um, heaven happens, uh, which was very surreal for me because I worked in the World Trade Center on two separate occasions. My brother was a commodities trader. He survived both World Trade Center bombings, Dang. the one in 93 and uh, 9-11. Uh, my wife had had surgery, so I was taking some leave. I wake up that morning, I turn on the news, the, like anyone else, I'm like, it's clear blue in a million. How did a plane hit the World Trade Center? I'm like, this is ridiculous. And they're like, it's a Cessna. I'm like, that's a lot of fire for a Cessna, you know? Yeah. And then as I'm watching it, here comes the other airplane. Boom. So I'm like, okay, well, obviously something's not kosher, you know? Yep. I head into work. I tell my wife, I think I need to go to work. I said, I just got a feeling I need to go into work. Takes me three hours to get on the base. While I'm in this traffic jam to get on the base, the towers collapse. So I go, oh, well, I think my brother's dead. You know, I'm like, I'll have to figure, you know how your mind works? Like you're, you're almost on autopilot. I'm like, I'll have to figure out a way to tell my mom later, but now I need to get on base and figure out what's going on. Yeah, mission focus, and I mean, yeah, that's an incredible. And he calls. Luckily, he calls my house about an hour later, so I know he's okay. I knew my mom wasn't there. She has no reason to go down to the World Trade Center at nine in the morning. So I figured the odds are she's good. And then the rest of the day was like, you know, I, I, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm one of the first three guys in the building. The commander isn't there yet. Wing commander calls like, hey, this is Captain Durellis. Hey, sir, what's going on? You know, he knows who I am. He's like, is the commander? I'm like, no, sir, I'm, I'm it. He's like, okay, I want uh, I want two aircraft fully armed and fueled ready to go. I'm like, uh, okay. And I'm like, someone go get maintenance, get the maintenance <laughs> chief. <laughs> Luckily, about two minutes later, the commander came in and took over all that and we flew a couple of patrols around the base to make sure. And then they came up. There was, there was some harebrained brief we went to. I'll never forget it. They said they had intel that a van was going to blow up the Hoover Dam. And they ID'd the van. Which, And this is at just at the beginning of the UA, when UAVs were being used a lot. So I'm going, how did they ID the van? You know, how, and, yeah. and then they have this cockamamie idea. They literally briefed this to us. The A-10s, that they were going to ID the van with the UAVs. The A-10s were going to strafe the van. And then we were going to infill the security forces to do what had to be done. And I, I remember looking over at my buddy. I'm like, this is just a bad, bad idea. I said, we're going to, I said, I just really hope this doesn't happen. I said, because we're going to shoot somebody, some mom and her kids coming back from grandma's house or something. I said, how many white, you know, it, luckily it, it was just a bunch of, you know, it was literally the day, two days after it was in that flurry of bad info. And thankfully no one ever did that, but that's how crazy it was. And then um, our, our bosses, my two, com my commander and DO who came from the special ops community, they got us in the war. They were on the phone nonstop to get us in the war. And my first detachment left in November of 2001 for Pakistan and, 
my first deployment followed shortly after the new year. Yeah, I would say um, you received a distinguished flying cross. I got the citation here. Um, and night, let's see, March 3rd, 2002. So the 20, war, yeah, 20 years, 20, 19 years yeah. ago, man. Yeah, how about that? To the day. So that's kind of, uh, it's a small world. Maybe there's a yeah. reason why we postponed this so many times. Yeah, yeah March 3rd, 2002, uh, Operation Anaconda. I mean, that was in the throes and the early, early it's efforts madness. of the war trying to find Bin Laden there. So can you talk to me a little bit about that day? What was going on? You, you again, the distinguished flying cross with the combat V. So you guys are flying around some really challenging terrain, especially thinking about a helicopter because altitude obviously yeah. is not your friend. You're getting shot at, and a lot is going on. So this is a, this is a really complex operation. Afghanistan, you know, for me, there, there may be some other folks, you know, guys who've flown to Everest or something, but I found Afghanistan to be probably the most challenging environment for a helicopter because, you, you know, mountains, high altitude, dust, pretty much everything that's not a friend of a helicopter is going on over there. Yeah. Not so, to mention bullets and RPGs. Yeah. Ever since yeah, that. Before we even get into that. Yeah. And, and so Anaconda happens. We're really not, no one knew who we were. Like when we showed up at Kandahar, they're like, who the hell are you guys? We're supposedly, everybody knows we're coming. We show up, the Army, the, the Marines had just turned it over to the 101st. The Army's like, who the, you know, who the F are you, you know? And we tell them, they're like, we don't, we got medevac. What do we need you guys for? You know, I mean, it just, no one knew who we were. We weren't in the planning because we were an ACC asset. So we weren't attached to the soft portion of it. But our bosses knew all the soft guys, right? Yeah. So they were very helpful to us getting our base set up, getting our ops set up at Kandahar. I, I was put in charge of setting up our op at Kandahar, put, you know, and getting us, you know, I had us ready to launch in three days. And um, even, even before Anaconda happened, we got launched on a medevac. Some uh, Australians had drone, uh, driven into a minefield and got blown up by a, a, a vehicle mine. Our first launch, because our talk was linked to the army talk by an old field phone, you know, those old wires that line got cut by a vehicle or something. Our first launch was literally an army sergeant ran to our talk about a half mile out of breath, gave us a piece of paper with some coordinates and said, you guys got to launch. That was our first launch in Afghanistan like that. And then we successfully prosecuted that mission um, then Anaconda happened, and and what had happened prior to Anaconda was the army had crashed a few birds, and this is no slam on them at all. It just a, it was low loom dust. It was just it was horrible, and you had guys with limited experience in that environment, and so they had some accidents, and um, so they were really nervous. You know, they were worried about how they were going to be able to employ those assets in the environment. And then Anaconda happened and just things started going to shit right away. I mean, there's no other way to put it, you know. Um, and we got launched up to a FARP, FARP Texaco, which became famous in the battle over there, you know, because of where it was. And we were just waiting around all day. And interestingly enough, I was walking back from talking to some PJs back to my helo. And the helo started going like this. 
And I'm like, man, I need to drink some water. I'm dehydrated. Finally, somebody screamed earthquake. Like in the middle of that, there was like a seven point something earthquake. Yeah, it's very Afghanistan. Yeah. And um, so I guess to just make it short and sweet, the there had been some wounded folks and they couldn't get to them all day. You know, the Apaches were getting shot off the LZ, all the aircraft. And they were coming at the FARP and I was seeing all these shot up aircraft and I was just agitating me because I'm just going, man, if a bullet can do that to that piece of metal, what's it going to do to me? You know, and, and yeah. you know, the, the whole reality of like, wow, this is this is a little real. And um, uh, we were getting ready to fly back to Kandahar, which was about an hour and a half flight south. Right. And then all of a sudden we get a call on the radio saying, hey, those guys are still there. No one's been able to get to them. Are you guys willing to try? So we go, yeah, we'll, we'll give it a shot. My flight lead, Tom Cahill, who got the silver star that day. It's kind of funny. He calls us together and he goes, hey, guys, um, I'm just letting you know, if we do this, there's a good chance we're going to get effed up. You know, does anybody have a problem with that? So I'm going, well, yeah, I kind of do, you know, but I'm not going to say anything. Right? You fun, know, yeah. And the PJs being PJs are like, no, let's go right now. You know, so I'm like, oh, man. So we get in, you know, my mouth is dry, everything. And we just, it just was a crazy night. Like we're talking to the, to the chaos, which was in PSAB, right? Which unfortunately was our launch authority, which is now that I'm retired 10 years, I'll say that's the dumbest idea ever to tie it to that higher headquarters for us to launch. And it did cause, cost some lives down the road later, I think, but they're passing Intel to us that we passed to them, you know, that we got from local, we're getting it from the local soft, you know, we're getting fed by the, we're in the top getting fed by the soft guys, the 10th mountain guys, so we're going, hey, this is what's going on. We send it to them. They're sending it to us. Then we're talking to a JTAC, which we don't know this, but he's not co-located with the people we're trying to find. He's in the talk, talking via radio to the people we're trying to find. But we don't know this, right? Yeah. So it just was your typical cluster. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the telephone game on steroids under yeah, immense I mean, amounts of pressure and stress like and there's just a lot going on like we get to the area that the, the the conventional forces are engaged you know so and everybody had those remember those little triangle lights guys would just hang on it everybody had those yeah and there's just shooting and we're trying to and guys are uh you know doing uh you know they got the, the chem light on the string it's just all kinds of confusing, conflicting information, as you can imagine. I'm sure you've been there a hundred times, right? But this is our first time out in this. And we're, so we land in the one LZ and they start shooting and mortaring us and no one's there. So we're like, okay, this obviously isn't the right place we leave. This is kind of funny, but sad at the same time. We land in another LZ and three soldiers jump on the aircraft, right? And all of a sudden the PJ comes on and he goes, hey, sir, these guys aren't wounded, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? Those? He goes, no, these aren't the guys. They think we're here to exfil them. So I'm like, well, they got to go. <laughs> you know, they they got to go. 
<laughs> so you remember the scene in Apocalypse Now, you know, where the, the guy's like, I'm not going. Yeah. One was like that. Like our PJs have to manhandle these poor guys off the aircraft <laughs> so we can continue looking for the, the, the actual wounded folks we're looking for. And we take off, we dump those guys. I'm like, man, I feel horrible, but, but we, got, we just couldn't take them. We hit bingo fuel now. And we're like, well, we can't leave. We're not going to leave. So we're like, F bingo. We'll figure something out. We'll <laughs> land there some friendlies or something. Make it happen. We keep going. Two spots them. So he goes in, he lands, gets the wounded out. We have blood, whole blood on our aircraft. So we have to land, put the whole blood, you know, the PJs transfer the whole blood. And I think one other PJ goes to the other aircraft. We get these three guys out. They're shooting RPGs. You know, it's just a blur. Like, I remember, like, seeing Tracers, and I'm just like, do I owe these guys money? Like, why are they shooting at me? What do I do to them, you know? just You know, I just want to come in and get this guy out. And um, we get these guys out, and we, we land at the FARP, I think, with seven minutes of gas is what we calculated we had left. I mean, it just – but here's the thing. I'm very proud of what we did, and I'm, you know, I'm obviously – humbled and proud to receive that award, but that was the beginning of the war, right? So that was a big deal. But in the context of combat search and rescue and the community I come from, those kind of missions happened routinely after that, routinely. Yep. So it seems like a big deal, but if I read the citations from some of my friends or the things I've witnessed or seen subsequent to that on my other uh, deployments, it, it was just routine. I mean, it, you know, we lived up to the legacy left by the Vietnam guys. And I also think we were victims of our own success because we pull off a couple of rough missions. We had a FLIR that the army guys, except for the 160th. And so we would get called out on missions when the weather was shitty. We didn't, we didn't have a red cross so we could shoot back. So anytime it was very challenging or very scary, they would ask us to do, you know, not, that, and again, the army guys, the army medevac guys are need wheelbarrows as much as anybody. And I've seen them and they will do anything. A lot of times their bosses won't let them do it because of the risk, right? It wasn't because of their, I want to be very clear about that. Like those guys are heroes and, and they're as ballsy as anybody, but Sometimes because we had guns or we had FLIR, they'd all oh, get the Air Force guys to do it. And the PJs are just, you know, again, I mean, you know, we, we could do stuff that they couldn't. Like we had the jaws of life. We had sometimes diving gear that the other guys. So we just had some capabilities that the regular Army medevac guys didn't have. So we would get do a lot of crazy stuff, you know, but. Listen, I was I was along for the ride on that. I mean, I was just basically navigating. I got to fly a little bit. Tom Cahill, who unfortunately uh, we lost to his demons a few years ago, was an amazing job. And the reason I'm talking to you, I mean, we we had some, you know, we lost, we drooped rotor at ten thousand feet, had to fly down the mountain to get flying again, so we didn't crash. I mean, he just some incredible flying skills that night, you know, and he's a former 160th guy before he transferred to the air force. I mean, just incredible stuff that there's no doubt a lesser pilot, we would have crashed. I was definitely 
couple of times that night, I was convinced. I'm like, well, this is where it ends in the mountains of Afghanistan here. I'm like, it doesn't look good. I, I, I'm not going to lie. Like there was one or two times where I'm like, it, we're going to crash. You know, I figured we'd crash. I didn't know what would happen after that. But, you know, if it wasn't for him, it, you know, he kept us out of some really, and he had already crashed in the Hindu Kush once about a month earlier, Jeez. you know? Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, you're humble to say that and, and downplay this, but in, in the end, it's, it's a very heroic act. And I know there's a thousand other stories. Like you said, like this became such a routine thing, right? There are the unfortunate pieces. There are a lot of stories out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And that was one reason of starting this podcast, right? Is to capture these, what we would consider everyday stories, right? Or you're just, I was just doing my job. But I think it's important to capture that and, and tell that story because it'll get lost in time otherwise. And, you know, it's life and death. You're like, I'm going to die in Afghanistan tonight, which probably five years before that, you probably couldn't have found Afghanistan on the map. I wouldn't have found Afghanistan on the map before 2001. You know, to digress for a moment, like for me, um, you know, I'm man enough to admit, like, I wanted to know if I was, I wanted to know I wasn't going to be a coward in one of those things. I'll never tell you I'm a hero, but I definitely know I'm not a coward. You know, I was a, I can look another warrior in the face and say, I, you know, I've done my thing, you know, and that was important to me. So to be able to do that and be able to do that. But then after you prove that, then the mission becomes everything, you know, that your job, your the legacy of the, you know, kind of like the Marine Corps, you know, you're, you're, you're the holder of a proud legacy previous. Well, in Air Force Combat Rescue, the Jolly Greens, the Pedros, that legacy. And then it's just, look, if we don't go, this guy's going to die. And it's, it, you know, I just would go, who am I to say I'm too valuable or I'm not going to go when some guy's going to going to die. And I know in your case, you know, I'm sure you've listened to the voices in a tick, you know, when you hear that and you hear them talking, it's like, you gotta, you gotta go, you know, or some of the special operators, you know, some bearded savage looks you in the eye and goes, Hey, sir, if shit goes South, you're going to be there. Right. You say, yeah, that's, you know, that bond is, you know, you can't not go, you know what I mean? And, and so that, that, you know, and, I'm just proud. It's cliche, and, and but I'm just so proud to have served with the people I served with. You know, the, 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 the caliber of people I got to serve with, especially in combat rescue, is just amazing to me. Like, I, 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 there's countless acts of bravery that I witnessed myself, plus the anecdotal ones, just the people I know, just the willingness. You know, my buddy... Aggie crashed, lost his leg, and he went back with a with a prosthetic leg and flew for a while. You know, it just got to be a little too much pain, and you know he had to he had to call it quits. But he went back and flew in combat with a prosthetic leg. I mean, what do you what do you how do you quantify that? It's not. I mean, I don't know. You know, and I know he's not the only one, but I'm saying, or just guys who. My buddy Keith, another guy, unfortunately, we lost. He got two DFCs in a week. He landed and picked up wounded guys with an engine failure, went back and got another helicopter and went back, you know, and, and I mean, you know, in two DFCs in a week, you know, I, I mean, that's, uh, 
So I'm in awe. I, I am even to of the people I serve with. And I'm just happy to be in the same room with them and happy that I can, you know, put on a Jolly patch or a Pedro patch and be part of the team. And it, it just, you know, and I don't want to digress from what we're talking about, but I mean, that's, like I said, you get older and further away from it and the, the meaning of it and the pride and the, the just the, the exceptional people you realize you got to be around. It's humbling to be a part of it, right? It is. And you've nailed it. The organization, the group of people that you get to call your friends, your comrades, I don't think you'll find that anywhere else in the world. Maybe in the fire service or you know, a police department, but it's to, to a certain degree, I don't think you'll find it outside of the military because the job is to go out there and hang it out. And at the end of the day, it's each other. That's what you're there for. And it's cliche to say, but I mean, I wholeheartedly agree is that that bond, that bond is unique. I'm, I'm willing to bet you felt this. Like I remember coming back, you know, we flew primarily at night. So we come back from a mission supporting for a while. We were, we followed the, 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 the 160th and the tier one guys around when they did their hits in the busy part of Iraq, six, seven time frame. You come back to Balad after a mission and, um, you know, we'd land and I'd be putting my gear in the truck and the sun's coming up and here come the 160th birds with all the shooters legs hanging out and they'd land and they'd be taking a prisoner out and the dog would be wagging its tail and, and they would, or they'd fly by and the little birds would fly by and a couple of guys would wave at you. Then we had these Navy birds that were there doing their support. They'd land and the sun's coming up. And I remember going, man, I don't think I'd want to be anywhere else in the world. Like this is the greatest job a person could have and people's to this day go like they don't understand but i'm just i would literally go like that you know this is the greatest job in the world and i know you know like any pilot walking out to an aircraft when the sun's coming up early morning you know just that turbine sound when you hit the start i mean and they're paying you and you're just like <laughs> i'm a lucky son of a you know, I mean, and, and I'm grateful and thankful. I consider my military service a privilege. And again, it's the most cliche thing and people roll their eyes. It was absolutely the privilege of my life to do this. And I just got to do it in a bunch of different uniforms, which is cool. Yeah, but know. it was a privilege. Yeah, for me, I know the the mission aspect of it, I think I found like the most rewarding, right? And that's something I struggle with is, is, it was no doubt my time in the military. Obviously, there are some exceptions to it, but especially like the deployment, the last deployment with doing OIR, it was a fighter squadron, a maintenance squadron. We were a group, so we didn't have a wing yet. So that's a little bit smaller for those who don't understand. And it was the everyone there was purely focused on the mission. There wasn't all this BS that went along with it. As you go fight a war and a wing builds up, yeah, all the frivolous stuff comes along with it. The random training that you don't need, the reflective belts that are the most important thing in the world. Yeah. All that silliness. I saw that from Afghanistan early when we were just like Wild West getting the job done to when Big Blue showed up. And yeah. It's a different world when Big Blue shows up, right? And that's the piece. Like, I'll remember that because, again, everyone there and everyone had a buy-in from the cops who were guarding the jets and the planes. Like, they knew when we dropped. They knew when we were doing stuff. Everyone had buy-in and they were focused and they knew what their piece of the puzzle was and that they had to play yes, their sir. part to make it happen. And if they didn't, 
the mission wouldn't happen. And, and when you get large enough as an organization, that's where I think we start failing because people start losing focus. I'm you know, as a seed guy, right? Suppression of enemy air defenses as a fighter guy, you, you want to think your tip of the spear. That's a support asset. You're there supporting doing close air support. You're a support asset. You're there to help other people do their job. And we yeah. sometimes we lose focus really quickly on what the mission is or what the focus is. You're preaching to the choir, yeah. right? I mean, I was, you know, I was a passed over major. Fine. That was my own, you know, kind of doing because I wanted to stay flying. But my last few deployments as a passed over major were great because all I did was shield my guys from the BS. Like when guys would, I would hunt people down who bugged my guys in the chow hall. Like they would, <laughs> yeah. I would like, you know, call their unit up. And I, I told one guy, I said, when you look in the mirror tonight, know that you're a complete failure as an officer and a leader. <laughs> and he was just really, and I'm like, yeah, you, you yelled at a guy, you yelled at a fellow officer in the chow hall over his mustache. Like he had chewed a, one of, and I'm like, you couldn't just take them and in a chow hall full of mostly enlisted folks, you embarrassed a fellow officer. I'm like, you couldn't just take them aside and go, Hey man, that mustache is a little crazy. You know, you might want to think about trim. You, there's no reason to be a jerk. And some guys were jerks. And then you have the E8, E9 guys who they're like trapdoor spiders lurking to grab some poor kid who's not in regs or something. And that used to just drive me nuts. I just, you know, I'm, that was one of the things that for me, and uh, one of the things that happened, I had a, one incident that really made me realize the Air Force is a crazy organization. Like we would deploy so often that we would have the same wing commander on multiple deployments, but they still want us to go to the right start brief, right? And despite our best efforts to get out of it, we would have to go. So I remember sitting there and the right start and. And the general goes, who's deployed for their first time? And just to make a and point, that, reason, that right start brief is one of those type briefings that doesn't need to happen. Exactly. But it's one of those things that follows when everyone shows up and someone doesn't have enough time or they're not focused on the mission. But he goes, who's their first deployment? So you get your bevy of young kids on their first deployment, you know, but about six E9s and I remember two or three O6s raise their hand. And I'm like, how do you get to senior rank and have never deployed? And we've been at war for almost a decade now. <laughs> this is late. This is, I think, 2008. And I'm just like, how is this possible? And then that's when I realized, but those are the people that are going to come over there and they're going to be, why aren't you wearing your reflective belt? And they wanted us to wear reflective belts all the time so that when we scrambled, they were like, just take them off before you get in the aircraft. I remember telling my commander, I said, sir, on the offhand chance that I get killed and Al-Qaeda's filming my body as they steal my watch, right? I don't want to be seen in a reflective belt. Right. Like, I don't, you know, don't want to be shamed in the afterlife. Right, right. I mean, you know, my family can deal with them stealing my <laughs> G-Shock, you know, but I don't want my kids to see their death happen. Or, you know, and I mean, I was I was half joking, half serious, you know, and it was just. So the mission focus and there is a difference. And I, unfortunately, I think this is a little uh, magnified in the Air Force because I've. I'm curious to get your thoughts. I think in the aggregate, if 15 percent of the 
the total Air Force has the potential or will ever hear a shot fired in anger. I think I'm being generous. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's probably, I would say, very very generous. I mean, you know, I I don't know. I had arguments with guys about emergency leave. Like, hey, I got to get this guy out. Well, the guy who does that, it's his day off today. We don't want to. I'm like, I don't care. Exactly. Go get it. You know, and I'm like, so there's a mindset between they're not, like you said, they're not getting the buy-in from some of those other organizations to really understand what they're there to support, you know, and it would get silly with karaoke. And look, I love the green bean as much as the next guy. Right. Yeah. But I mean, you, they got karaoke night and, and it's like, okay, great. But they're out there. There's the war going on, you know, or I got yelled at for using foul language by a Lieutenant Colonel. And I'm like, sir. And I, I am a potty mouth. I'm being nice here because, <laughs> but I, I mean, my nickname, my one Charlie used to call me a uh, major potty mouth. Well, you know, the but, thing I think we did well in our last deployment because it was so small was we were yeah. like, we, what we do is we'd host on every Saturday, we'd have two pilots go anyone on base. Again, it's a small base could go and they could watch our tapes. So we would cut a bunch of the footage from that week. We'd have the pilots go talk through, hey, dude, this was like 12 ISIS dudes. They were firing here, da-da-da. And then, then they got smoked with two 500-pounders. But they would go through that, right? And then you could give them like, hey, by you standing there and keeping the, the mess hall open for an extra hour, it allowed these guys to eat or whatever it might be. But you saw everyone there had buy-in. And when you get, like, when you get too large- That's brilliant, man. That, that's, that, that's a brilliant idea. And I wish- I wish more units would have done that. I, I just think it gets so big. You know, like yep. Balad was like huge. It's like an international airport. And I mean, you know, who knows how many organizations there were there, you know, and, and it, it just it became silly. But, you know, you just got you got people who are never going to see it from the perspective you're going to see it. And, and your perspective becomes. It, Why are you worried about a reflective bell or right. guys tucking their PT gear in? Like, give a, give a guy a chance to get out of his vehicle before you yell at him about tucking his shirt in, you know, thing, things like that. You just see nonsense. And so I just made sense. it my job to protect my guys. I, I would say crazy things like if you see someone with a Pedro patch or a Jolly patch, you're not allowed to talk to them. <laughs> I would just say outrageous <laughs> stuff. And my boss, God bless him, he covered his ass by going – He's passed over. What do you want me to do? Yeah. Like, There's, I can't it, send him home, yeah. you know? I need him. <laughs> so, I need him. It's a good spot to be in because you can be the protector. Yeah. The one, I guess the other funny story yeah. I have is from Shaw. So I show up to Shaw. There's three fighter squadrons. The F-16 is not a quiet plane. I go to get my, my annual dental exam, and I'm getting clean, and the dentist is in there, and she's asking me what I do. I'm in my flight suit. Meanwhile, you can just hear the jets taking off for the go, and it's, I mean, it's deafening. Right. Even the dental clinic, like, which is like two mile or a mile away from the flight line. And you're like, well, I fly. And she's like, well, what do you fly? I'm like F-16s. Where are those at? I'm like, they're here. That's what I do. You know, you're just like, it, there's only Rain. so much you can do, you know? Rain, I have had, I, I, I know you're not going to believe me. Right hand to God on two occasions. I've had Air Force 06 pilots go to me. The Air Force has helicopters. <laughs> like I, we used to, even in, they'd be like, you guys are army pilots, right? We'd be like, no, yeah. we're Air Force pilots. You it's, know, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, it doesn't surprise me, which it should, but 
you know, I, I believe it wholeheartedly. I mean, no, I'm, I'm being, being on, like I, when I first got in the air force, I did a, you know, dog and pony show at Nellis, some full bird C5 guys. Like we have helicopters. That's, you know, that was my frustration, right? It's the air force. What is the mission? And there are obviously some other aspects of it, whether it be, you know, special operations, combat controllers, PJs, JTACs that are doing their mission oriented people. And they're doing the mission, whatever that might be. Um, and again, you have to know where you fit. Like sometimes you're a support asset as a fighter pilot. You're a support asset at times. Sometimes you're the tip of the spear and you're slinging AMRAMs to go kick the door down. Other times you're making sure people can get into and out of where they need to go safely. And you have to know where you fit in that. And we, I, I think it's easy. The focus is easily lost. And we go down the rabbit hole of this. And it's obviously the discussion many a time at the squadron bar. Um, the air force could do itself a favor every now and then by, I used to get I used to get some good arguments with a couple of my academy buddies, you know, and on doctrine. And I'd be like, listen, because they'd be like, the Air Force can win wars. I'm like, no, the Air Force can facilitate when and again, there's the I said, and again, this is from my Marine Corps background. I said, wars involve acquiring real estate. And the real estate will always be acquired by a 19-year-old with a rifle. And your job at the end of the day is to make it so that 19 year old with a rifle can acquire that real estate in the safest, least dangerous way possible. And that's what we're here to do. And we can strategically affect that by diminishing the enemy's capabilities, you know, be it electric, you know, whatever that capability is. That's sort of my philosophy. Now, I got in some good arguments, you know, guys who fell into the Billy Mitchell, you know, and. But it's it's interesting. Like I believe everything is built around supporting Private Schmuckatelli as he goes about the country's business of you know gaining that real estate or going out and finding bad guys and shooting them in the face. Yep. You know, in the case yep. of the bearded guys, you know, I think that's what we do, and you know, that's my, my philosophy on that. No doubt, I would agree. So real quick before we wrap up here, you've retired. What are you doing today? Okay, so I retired. I didn't want to get a real job. I don't, I've had a couple of real jobs. I never really liked them. So I, I just, I've been flying EMS on and off since I retired. Um, it's a great job. You know, uh, I work a 14 on, 14 off schedule. We work 12 hour shifts. So I have two weeks off a month. Um, which allows me time to spend time with my grandkids and stuff. Um, uh, and I've always been as far back as I could remember a mo movie buff guy. Like I, you know, used to go to movies as a kid, double features, triple features, me and my friends, my brother and I, I'll even go alone if I need to see a movie. And, and I've always been interested in acting. I just been just, and it was something I was interested in, but flying was really my love, you know. So when I retired, I just decided, hey, man, give it a shot. You know, you the great thing about our experiences is you want one in aviation in general, you learn life can be short. And two, you know, add water that you're like, well, you, we only got one shot at this thing. Let's let's do what we want to do. So I decided to pursue some acting and I got really lucky, <laughs> started taking some classes joined an organization called Media uh, Veterans in Media and Entertainment, which is basically a networking group for veterans in all aspects of the entertainment industry. 
and they they work with some casting folks in uh, New Amsterdam. That medical show on NBC uh, was looking for some veterans. I sent in a tape. They liked it. I got to be a guest star on it. If you're ever interested in watching it, Hulu season two, episode seven, you'll see my ugly mug within the first 10 minutes of the show. Have to go and check I, it out. And I just, I've been pursuing that ever since. I like it. Um, COVID came along and kind of slowed things down. Now I'm, I'm, uh, I just got a manager and, and we're working on an agent and we'll see what happens, you know? And again, and then, as I mentioned earlier, unfortunately I got a little kick in the, uh, no pun intended <laughs> in the, in the Jimmy with uh, this prostate thing. And, um, uh, got me doing a little research, you know, rain. It's, uh, I think the rate among pilots is like twice the normal population. For, yeah. uh, so those listen, we, we were talking before we started recording, uh, you found you had prostate cancer and what led those doing this job. I realized really fortunate to be able to do it in the first place. And the guys who make it all the way to their retirement flying aircraft are really blessed and fortunate because the more, yeah, I mean, more it looks, you hear that, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, the outlook for me is pretty solid and I should get back to the cockpit, you know? Um, but uh, I, in the course of doing research, I, I realized in, especially in the, uh, you know, in military aviation, it's just a little more of a, of an issue, but honestly, I'm not that surprised that I got it. You know, I'm not what was me because it, around aviation, you're just around toxic stuff all the time. Uh, and then for me, I've been, so I, I'm about two and a half years cumulative time downrange, a little more maybe. Okay all the places that had burn pits. Yep. And then I spent five months cumulatively at K2 and we all know what was going on there. So I'm really not surprised. I just hoped it would happen later in life where it wouldn't matter. How old are you right now? 59. Yeah. So I just, I just hoped it would happen a little bit later, but uh, I'm not, you know, cause you, you know, aviation is pretty toxic. The, the materials and the fuels and the, chemicals involved in servicing the systems, the oils, the lubricants. So, uh, and I, I, you know, unfortunately the internet's a good and bad thing, but I just started researching it and I just found out when I started looking, you know, I started just Googling prostate cancer pilots pro and it was like, you know, whoa. And I'm like, really? I, I didn't know that we had it at more of a, a little more numbers than the average population. So that, Got me, to, but it makes sense when you think about it. But like I said, I'm very lucky. I'm an optimistic guy. They said it's early, so we'll do the treatment. Um, some of the after effects of the treatment aren't the most, you know, the first few months after will probably suck a little bit, but uh, I guess it's better than the alternative. You know, it's, I'm still wrapping my head around it. It's pretty new. So I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it because you don't have any symptoms. I don't feel bad. I just normal PSA testing. And they're like, yeah, you know, two rounds of testing. Like, yeah, we better take a biopsy. And they're like, yeah, it sucks to be you. So, uh, I'm, but I feel fine. I'm working out. Was that part of a routine physical? They called it. I know you said PSA testing, but what, yeah, you yeah. Go? If you're over fifty, well, I, don't, I don't know. Everybody's different. I'm far from an expert, but you, you get to be fifty-ish, they start doing PSA testing, and then it, once it's above a certain thing, they start keeping an eye on it. And if you get two tests that are a little high, they'll have you get a biopsy which is a pretty easy, but not the most pleasant procedure, but it's pretty easy. And then they 
you know, that's where it comes back and they tell you, you know. I, I mean, uh, I guess my little PSA before we wrapped up is if you're over 45, get your PSA tested, catch it early. You know, if you catch it early, according to everybody, you're golden. Wow. So I just recommend, you know, the beauty of being retired military is I always would go for a yearly physical just to get all my numbers. I work out pretty hard. I, you know, so I'm kind of try to keep on breast of my numbers, cholesterol, you know, that trying to, and that's another thing. Like I'm just, my schedule schedule as my surgery schedule for the end of April. So between now and then I'm just going to train as hard as I can. So I'm in the best shape I can going into it so that my recovery is, you know, I asked this, my surgeon thinks I'm an idiot because he's, I'm like, well, when can I get back to flying? And when can I go back to the gym? He's yeah, like, that's it. what you're concerned about. I'm like, you said, once you get it out, I'm good. He goes, you are, but most people are worried about, I'm like, I just want to know when I go back to flying and when I go back to the gym. Get after it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I love it. Like, <laughs> you know, he's, you know, he's like, you know, he's probably, he probably just like this guy's a moron, but um, those were the first two questions I asked him. I said, I got a bunch of questions, but the first one is, have you ever worked with pilots? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, will you, I'm going to need some specific stuff. Will you be able to do that for me? He's like, yeah. And I said, well, how soon can I go back to the gym? And he's like, really? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably not what most people are asking or worried about. You know, I love that you mentality. Know, I, man, what can you do? I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think I'm a particular, I just, what can you do? Like it is what it is. Life, you know, life, man, I hate to get philosophical, but it just is what it is. You, you're going to curl up in a ball in the corner and go, why, why me or why, or you just go, okay, I'll deal with it. What do we do? You yeah. know, and then just deal with it. It's proverbial. The, the, I mean, you're dealing with a, you know, the hand you got dealt and you either deal with it or you don't. I mean, that, it's pretty simple when it comes down to it. Some people get a good yeah, deal and some people get a bad it. deal. And I mean, again, I, again, cliche, but I credit my experiences in the military, being able to compartmentalize, being able to, you know, aviation teach, you know, that's a crazy word, but compartmentalization has helped me a lot in life, you know, being able to focus and go, okay, well, this is going on. I get it. But right now I, I got a quarter mile viz and, <laughs> and I know there's mountains around here. So let me worry about, uh, let me worry about getting through this supposed, uh, pass through these hills that are uh, that's on this map that i can't really see what's the closest alligator to the boat kill that one first you know yeah yeah man well yogi we'll keep you in our prayers i really appreciate you taking the time today to join me on the podcast i'm glad we could finally make it happen still kind of you know boggles my mind march 3rd 2002 yeah i I didn't realize that till we talked about it i mean it's an honor and a privilege i mean i'm glad to be on the podcast i listen to it i like it Oh man, I just, I love that you're getting people in that military aviation. I I mean, I, I, you know, keep me, keep me informed of like the feedback. Like I just, I, cause I listen to these podcasts and I, I, like you said, I like, I just want to know what people think about them. Like, cause people ask me all the time about, you know, what I did and it's kind of hard to explain, you know? And so it's tough. It's, it's tough to explain it in a, just a few minutes, right. To encapsulate in a whole career. It's tough to do it in an hour and a half. Like you, you can't do it. No, it's, it's great, man. I like, you got all your squadron poster yeah. stuff back there. <laughs> I, I got, I got it. I got to get, I got to get some of their stuff, man. I've been, I've been really watching their stuff. I just got to, uh, 
They, they do good set work. set my place up. Yeah, they yeah. do good work. I like it. You know, again, it's kind of just a way to capture the memories of where, you know, where you were back in the day. Yeah. So it's good. But yeah, but yeah, no, I, I, mean, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like these podcasts are amazing. I've learned so much and I spent so much time on the road driving back and forth to work that just, I really love them, you know, and, and I learn a lot and it's just interesting people. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's great because people have some great stories to tell, man. And it's just, I have led like crazy lives like you, you know, no, I'll, Brian, say, I'll, I'll say it's a perfect one to wrap up on. Cause you know, I mean, that's, that's the exact thing is your story. I mean, it fits right in there. Right. And it is another one and it's another data point. And even though it's like a, you know, it's just one episode You've lived an entire life in that and done some pretty incredible things. So being able to capture some of that is pretty awesome. I'm, I'm humbled to be able Let's to do it. I'm a lucky dude, man. Got a great family, great grandkids, two beautiful daughters, four beautiful grandkids. This country's given me the opportunity to achieve every dream I ever had. I mean, silly ones like, oh, I want to be an actor. I've been on TV. Maybe yeah. it'll never happen again. But I'm, <laughs> I mean, that's why I love this country, man. You just, if you think it, you can try it and do it. No one ever said when I joined the Marines, they were like, they, I remember walking in, they like, yeah, give it a shot. Like they were like, no, I don't know, yeah, dude, don't know how. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, my first, first time I went to an enlisted recruiter and they were just like, eh, I don't know, dude, but Hey, if you want to try give it a shot. I mean, I, that's Good the greatest place in the world, man. And getting to talk to people like you and, and be on your podcast is a gift and I really appreciate it, John. Very much. Yeah, Yogi, thanks for joining, man. I really appreciate it. It was good finally linking up with you, man. And uh, I'll be listening. Keep in touch. And uh, I'll be listening to uh, your uh, podcast. You've got a permanent fan from now on. I appreciate it. My drive's down to Yuma, man. (laughs) Cheers, brother. See you later. Fly safe. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, if you're looking to support the podcast, get these episodes ad-free, patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. Until next time.